What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The French national team was just... Uh, in Russia and had monkey chance directed at them, there is that possibility that they can speak out. I mean, I think our, our best hope could be the French in a way. Paul Pogba has been very outspoken against racism. Lionel Messi of Argentina, the great goal scorer, has been outspoken against homophobia. And so if there is extreme cases of homophobia and racism, it would be my hope that they'd use their social media platforms and maybe even have a sort of team statement that, that chastises this kind of behavior and says how wrong it is. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Today we speak to a professor of political science at Pacific University in Oregon, a former professional soccer player who represented the U.S. Olympic soccer team, and the author of the book Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics. Of course, I'm talking about Jules Boykoff. We are talking about the World Cup in Russia. Also, I've got some choice words about the analysis that's going around about why NFL owners capitulated to Donald Trump and why I think that analysis is ass backwards. And lastly, I got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards, including a very special hockey-infused reader-offered Just Stand Up award. But first, let's go to Jules Boykoff. Jules Boykoff, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Now, you and I were in Brazil for the World Cup. We saw the way it brought debt, displacement, hyper-militarization to the people of Brazil. What do we know about what the World Cup is bringing to Russia? Well, the trends that we saw in Brazil are indeed trends. So we shouldn't be surprised that we see the high, high price tags in Russia for the event it costs about $11 billion to pull this thing off. It's footed mostly by the federal government as well as some private entities. So huge costs. Militarization, absolutely. You'll remember back to the Sochi 24 Olympics when it was just a small town that was basically being protected from a number of people who had made threats against the Olympics as a terrorist target. Try spreading that out across the entire country and you've got a real security dilemma. So Russia has ramped up security in pretty major ways across the entire land, uh, including pulling in the Cossacks. You might remember them from Sochi 2014. They have those fuzzy little hats and the, and the horse whips. They actually whipped Pussy Riot during the Olympics. So they'll be on hand in numerous World Cup venues to enforce the peace, as it were. And, you know, one of the big things that we saw with Brazil was the white elephant factor. So building up these stadiums for the big event, 
only to have them sit moribund afterwards. And that's definitely telegraphed here in Russia. A lot of the venues that have been built up for these this World Cup uh, are really going to be tough to fill afterwards. There's just not the domestic league, the big support for football in Russia required to fill these stadiums. I mean, Sochi has a stadium that was built for the Olympics, 48,000 person stadium that's being used now for the World Cup. And there's no professional Russian league team there. So it's going to sit there empty as it usually does. So there's a lot of problems that we saw in Brazil that extend to Russia and will extend further to Qatar as well. Mm. And what about displacement? Are we seeing anything in that department in Russia? Have people had to actually move for the purposes of these white elephants? There hasn't been as much of that as one might expect, given the extensive construction required. What you have seen, though, is a lot of human rights groups, including Human Rights Watch, who's been really out front on this, who've been talking about the worker deaths during stadium construction Uh, The Global Trade Union Building and Woodworkers International documented at least 20 worker deaths that have occurred in the building of these stadiums. And, you know, FIFA has the the world governing body for soccer. FIFA has agreed to respect the, the U.N. guiding principles on business and human rights. But they're definitely not speaking out about these worker deaths. Even North Korean workers died in building the St. Petersburg Arena for the World Cup. And, you know, if you ask me, FIFA has been conspicuously uh, uninquisitive, shall we say, when it comes to these worker deaths. So that's something that we should be talking about. um, But this definitely being brushed under the carpet now. Mm. Now, speaking of FIFA and silence, uh, there have already been reports of homophobic attacks during these World Cups, something that uh, a very sizable uh, part of the population in Russia said that they believed was an inevitability going into the World Cup. I believe the the, the poll number was 39% thought that this was going to happen, and it's already happened, um, according to several news outlets. But why has this issue been so on the front burner as people have been going into Russia? Why has the specter of homophobic attacks, something we didn't hear about in Brazil, for example, why, why has this been something that people have said is uh, almost collateral result of having the World Cup in Russia? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you asked about that, because in some ways, the blatant racism around Russian football or soccer may be over overshadowing the anti-gay laws that have been in place. And I think that's the answer. Homophobia has been enabled and indeed promoted by the highest level of government in Russia. So let's step back to 2013 in June of that year when Russia passed what's being called, quote, a gay propaganda law that essentially was designed to prohibit promoting homosexuality. So it's not a crime per se to be gay in, in Russia. But there is a law against the promotion of homosexuality to minors. So essentially mentioning homosexuality in public is in effect criminalized. And so it comes from the highest levels of government in Russia, what we're seeing here. And there's been a lot of discussion in the lead-ins to this, what will happen when people come from around the world where LGBTQ people are seen as equals, as they obviously should be, what's going to happen when they're walking the streets holding hands? There's been guidelines issued by the London-based group FAIR network that is advised not being super showy about your love if you're in a homosexual relationship for fear of vigilante violence. And it's true. It's a real concern in Russia because vigilantes essentially 
have been preying on young people, especially gay men, trying to lure them with dating apps to these sort of fake rendezvous. And then they turn around once they arrive and they beat them up, humiliate them, sometimes post to social media the the beatings. And then, you know, what is what happens with the Russian government? They don't crack down. I mean, essentially, it's in the country's code that it's basically okay to look down at LGBT people as second class citizens. So it's a real concern. And the initial reports that we've seen are harrowing. And we should hope that FIFA would be standing up and fully looking into these and chastising Russia for not stepping up and addressing them more vigorously. Mm. And then you mentioned the issue of racist hooliganism as well. I mean, what is FIFA doing, if anything, to combat this? Yeah, well, I mean, racist hooliganism has a a long history in Russia, especially among some of the fringes of the fan groups there. And so there again, FAIR has done a really nice job with this FAIR network and Piara Poar's group based in London documenting meticulously the uh, the monkey chants, the Nazi flags that you see at top flight games. I mean, these are the top league games in Russia, and you're seeing people flying banners uh, that are basic, that are racist. You've seen throwing bananas on the field. You've seen monkey chants directed at players of African descent in Russia. It's gotten a little bit more coded in terms of coded racism rather than sort of the in your face, straight up racism. So nowadays you're more likely to see ultra-nationalist groups put forth the Celtic cross. Maybe they have these runes that are of a specific meaning, Nazi numerical code number 88. They, uh, you've seen the, the motto of the SS, my honor is loyalty on some banners. So it's a little bit more coded, but it's a long history of racism. So even just re- recently, In March 2018, when France showed up to play a so-called friendly match against Russia in Russia, there were monkey chants directed at French players like Paul Pogba and others uh, of African descent. And so, you know, it's it's really open in Russia. It's definitely thriving in some of these hooligan communities, but it happens in in the open as well. In the lead up to the World Cup. Every host country holds something called the Confederations Cup a year in advance of the actual World Cup. It's kind of like a warm up and get people excited about the World Cup. Well, Cameroon participated in the Confederations Cup last year. And before one of the matches, a group of fans wore blackface as they paraded through Sochi. This is like an official event for the Confederations Cup. So, uh, you know, you mentioned Brazil and there's a Brazilian player called Hulk who played in Russia domestic league. Yeah. And Hulk said that he was racially abused by the referee during a match. So, I mean, it goes far and wide in Russia and it's, it's a serious problem. And what's being done to address it by FIFA, they have made some positive steps here. Um, for, for starters, they tried to design a ticketing system designed to keep hooligans away. So each World Cup ticket has to be registered to an individual. They call it the Russia's fan ID system. And it's like a personalized visitor card that sort of not only allows somebody to come into the country, but also allows them to purchase tickets and, and attend. But it's definitely not foolproof. I mean, you've seen people touting tickets and and scalping them at these at these matches, even if they don't uh, go right along with the Russian fan card that's been issued. So there are definitely ways of getting around it. I mean, I guess 
the hope is that Putin, uh, Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, has said that he doesn't want to see any kind of open racism at these uh, at this World Cup, and really has been threatening the the hooligan fan base, saying, you know, basically you'll have guilt by association if I see any anything happen. You're all going to get punished for it. And you've actually seen a lot of the Russian hooligans that are these racists that have left the country for the World Cup because if something happens, they want to have an alibi that they're in another land. And, you know, finally, there has been some smart movement among other countries that have strong hooligan cultures, like, say, England, where they've prevented a lot of their hooligans from traveling to Russia. So hopefully we won't see, you know, the street fighting is probably going to happen in a forest if it happens. And uh, but you won't see the street fighting like right outside of venues. But, you know, anything's possible when you throw racism, homophobia and sort of this extreme macho culture into the mixer. Mm. I got to ask as, as a follow up to uh, some of these questions, has, have, have we seen any resistance or protests to either the debt displacement and militarization, the homophobia, the racist hooliganism? Has there been any street protests in Russia? It's extremely difficult to protest against the World Cup and any of its offshoots that we've been discussing in Russia. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, 2015, in fact, where Boris Nemtsov, a leading Russian opposition politician, was killed in the shadow of the Kremlin. He was shot four times in the back as he was crossing a bridge in Moscow. Um, the anti-corruption activist Alexei Navalny is regularly arrested for expressing dissent. The message is very clear, Dave that you express dissent at your own peril. I mean, the World Cup is happening amidst a pretty massive crackdown on dissent. I mentioned the Cossacks, God knows what they're going to do, but there's just been a massive crackdown on anti-Putin protesters just as recently as May, 2018. And so you'll see people interviewed in the press that aren't happy with what's happening in Russia, but they're not even willing to put their name on the record for fear of pushback by the government. So it's an extremely perilous moment to protest in Russia right now. What about teams themselves? Are there any of the teams in the World Cup that you think might have a little bit of moxie in them to, to either be outspoken or do any sort of protest during the course of the World Cup? Or is that well going to be particularly dry? Well, it's possible. It sort of depends what happens. The French team has a bit of a record speaking out on political issues over the last couple de decades. And since Paul Pogba and company, the French national team was just uh, in Russia and had monkey chants directed at them, there is that possibility that they can speak out. I mean, I think our, our best hope could be the French in a way. Paul Pogba has been very outspoken against racism. Lionel Messi of Argentina, the great goal scorer, has been outspoken against homophobia. And so if there is extreme cases of homophobia and racism, it would be my hope that they'd use their social media platforms and maybe even have a sort of team statement that, that chastises this kind of behavior and says how wrong it is. Now, the other big World Cup political news from this last week was the USA, Mexico, and Canada in this joint bid of North America being granted the World Cup for 2026. And mm -hmm. I'm hoping you could speak a little bit about that. Like, what do you think? It, like, the, the, first of all, the structure of it going across the whole continent. Uh, what was perhaps bizarre about this bid? Who supported USA, Mexico, and Canada? Um, who is this a win for? I mean, maybe you could break this down for us a little bit. Sure. So the day before the World Cup started, 
the United bid won. So the United bid, as you say, is Canada, Mexico, and the United States. It's the first time where the World Cup will be hosted by three countries. And so there's there's the uniqueness in that. So I guess this is a best of times, worst of times moment for for U.S. soccer fans. On one hand, the men's team is not participating in this year's World Cup. On the other hand, there is some excitement in North America and Mexico around hosting the World Cup in around eight years. And so um, as, as you, Dave, have long demonstrated in your work, hosting mega events like these come with serious downsides. So, I mean, the silver lining of winning the World Cup, so to speak, comes with dark and perhaps even indelible stains on it. Um, it's an interesting moment to be a, a fan of the World uh, of the World Cup in the United States when your team's not playing. And I suppose the U.S. failure to qualify deprived a lot of liberals and maybe even some leftists of a space in which to express a sort of modicum of nationalism. But but hey, that's that's done. The U.S. failed, and everyone's looking ahead to 2026 and. I think when you look at the voting, and I think FIFA does deserve some credit for this because they've made the voting public so your listeners can go online and see which countries voted for Morocco and which countries voted for the United bid. And it's pretty fascinating when you jump in there because countries like Belgium and France and Brazil, huge football nations, soccer nations, they voted for Morocco, despite the fact that the Morocco bid entailed a ton building. I mean, it's just not ready for the kind of huge tournament that is the World Cup. You had um, a lot of countries from CONCACAF, uh, the region in, including North America and South America, uh, or Central America, voting for the, the United bid, of course. Um, it's funny with Brazil, actually, because kind of sad, actually, because the Brazil delegate voted for Morocco after having publicly said that it, he was going to support the United bid. But apparently the person didn't realize that, in fact, the voting was now public. And I think that highlights the fact that this is a good thing to have the votes public. We can see who voted for whom because they come out with these technical reports ahead of time in terms of safety for visitors, in terms of the networks of travel in place, in terms of the stadiums that have been built or not built. And so in the past, what's happened when people vote is that they just can take those and toss them over the, their shoulders, these technical reports, and not take them into consideration at all and just vote for whoever bribed them or you know, whoever they just happen to like personally. And so this is hopefully a safeguard against that. The other thing is different about the voting for this is that in the past, it was sort of this tiny little cadre of the executive committee of FIFA that selected the next host as happened in 2010 when Russia was selected for this World Cup and then Qatar for 2022 at the same time. This time around, everybody gets to vote. Each country's delegation gets a vote and it is public. So it's a pretty fascinating moment. And, you know, there's 23 cities that were shortlisted for the United States. They're going to have to dwindle down those 23 cities to 16 that will actually host matches, including Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, by the way. Both of them are on that long list of 23. So those will be the next steps for the United bid to decide which cities in these three countries actually get to host the games. Now, I should also point out it's a United bid and the three countries are involved, but it's a heavily weighted toward the United States bid. I mean, 60 of the 80 games are slated to happen in the United States. So it's it's really going to be heavily pressed toward the United States direction there. 
Now, is there any connection between the U.S. gaining this bid and the U.S. leading the raids on Set Blatter and uh, changing, on some level, the culture of FIFA through this, this criminal intervention into the workings of the sport? You know, I have not seen evidence of there being a connection between the two. I think it's been floated here and there, but, you know, I'm a social scientist, so I need to see evidence of that. I just haven't seen it yet. I feel like we're talking about two separate things, and the people at FIFA really, who are voting on this, uh, really decided that it'd be in the best interest, long-term interest of the organization to go with the United bid. I mean, one thing that almost tripped up what the United bid wasn't so much the FBI as it was President Donald Trump, who the the whole world knows how horrible he is in terms of this so-called America First program that he's pushing here. Trump stepped up and said that there'd be visa-free travel to the United States during the World Cup, which was in question given his awful policies around admittance of refugees or anyone really to the United States, his immigration policies. So um, that actually kind of allowed people some space to vote for the United bid when they were questioning it before. But it wasn't enough for places like France, Belgium, and Brazil. They all still went with Morocco. Which is being viewed in some quarters as a rebuke of Trump. Is that what I'm hearing? I think so. I, I think it has to be seen as a rebuke of Trump, but also the wider history of, of the United States. As you well know, I mean, it's not just Trump that's the problem here. We, we have a pretty brutal history of imperialism in this country, and, and you don't have to travel too far to, to talk to people who know that history really well and up close and personal. So it goes well beyond uh, President Trump, President Obama. Obama and his drone policy and, you know, you name it back through through history here. And, you know, I should say that while I've been giving FIFA props, I suppose, for opening up their voting and allowing us to actually see who votes for whom, I mean, let's not forget that FIFA's integrity can essentially only be measured in parts per million. I mean, this is a group that still, despite a few reforms, has major, major problems and all sorts of money sloshing through the system that's not really accounted for. And so I don't want to have your listeners walk away thinking that FIFA is this incredibly reformed organization and really on the up and up. There's a lot to worry about there. And in fact, their former chief, uh, Sepp Blatter, who was the head of the organization for a long time and was there when the the um, Swiss hotel was raided back in May 2015, Sepp Blatter, it looks like he might actually travel to Russia at the behest of Vladimir Putin, who wants to have him as his special guest. This is a Sepp Blatter who really doesn't travel much outside of Switzerland for fear of being nabbed and extradited. So we might still see some excitement and some a good reminder of the serious corruption that's bricked into what happens at FIFA if Sepp Blatter shows up in Russia. Mm. Well, speaking of excitement, we haven't yet talked about the action on the field. And I did want to give our listeners at least some sense of what's happening mm. there. Um, most of the time, as you referenced, people attach themselves to the U.S. team for as long as they possibly can. And there is no U.S. team in the World mm. Cup. Thank you, Trinidad. Thank you, Trinidad. And so I wanted to ask you what teams or players should be on our radar screen for the soccer novice. Who are some teams that you see as favorites? Who are some teams you see as dark horses? Who are some countries that uh, we should get behind? Sure. I mean, favorites, there are some major favorites in this tournament. There's Spain, for starters, has a golden generation of players like Andres Iniesta, Gerard Piquet. 
PK is interesting because he almost didn't play in this World Cup because he spoke out for Catalan independence and got major flack for what he said. And he, he said at one point, I'm not even sure I want to play in this World Cup, but they managed to convince him to come. Spain is incredible, super skillful team, glorious to watch. Belgium, that's the team that I'm really rooting for, and I have them picked to win it. Um, they have this amazing striker in Romelu Lukaku. He's Belgium's all-time leading scorer. They've got sublime playmakers in Aiden Hazard and Kevin De Bruyne. They have the great hair factor, uh, Fellaini, this incredible midfielder with this beautiful coiffure of hair. Um, they pretty much have it all, and there's a certain joy and flair to the way they play. And of course, having lived in Brazil for some time, there's always going to be Brazil in my heart, so I'll be rooting for players like Neymar, Marcelo, Philippe Coutinho, who are all playing really well right now, and who wouldn't want a little redemption after losing on their home soil in 2014. Um, in terms of underdogs, wow, the Iceland story is pretty incredible. It's, they, they have had a storybook start to their World Cup with a 1-1 draw with Argentina. Iceland's amazing. I mean, the population of their entire country is only slightly more than Stockton, California. Mm. Dave, Iceland is so small that there's an app to make sure you don't accidentally sleep with your cousin, and it's mm. a popular app. So, but beyond that, I mean, they have some really interesting and quirky figures. I mean, the the coach is a former dentist who only a decade or so ago was coaching a U12 team, an under 12 team. He lives in an island where there's more pigeons and puffins than there are people, and at the at the home games, he's organized these sort of pre-game pre chalk talks for Iceland fans where he talks about strategies, tactics, the lineup, and what he's thinking about the match. And it originally started a few years ago, and like, you know, a handful of people would show up to these chalk talks. And now it's like in the hundreds, like 700 people showed up at one. And what's remarkable is that he actually tells the fans, the, the diehard Iceland fans, like who's going to be playing, what the tactics are going to be. And none of this information has leaked out through social media. So there's something kind of special going on in Iceland. And another underdog, I guess you might say, is Peru, who hasn't qualified since 1982. They were almost deprived of one of their star strikers, Paulo Guerrero, who was almost banned from this World Cup because he had inadvertently ingested some sort of cocaine-infused tea, but the, he got back on the train and he's being allowed to participate in these games. And then finally, someone who I think it's really easy to cheer for who's playing for a team that's definitely an underdog is Mohamed Salah of Egypt. Um, this guy is just an effervescent player but he's also a, a global icon. In Liverpool, they have a chant that goes, if he's good enough for you, he's good enough for me. If he scores another few, then I'll be Muslim too. So, I mean, he's just doing incredible political crossover work in terms of just like really helping people see that Muslims are people too. You wouldn't think that you'd have to say that in this world today, but obviously in some quarters, we need a reminder of that. Another thing that's interesting about Salah, in addition to him being just an incredible player, is that he's been sort of pulled into the political vortex in Egypt. So um, the Egyptian Football Association held a press conference in support of President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi's bid for re-election a few months ago. This was, by the way, a violation of FIFA rules. But of course, you know, FIFA let it slide, whatever, whatever, they don't care. Um, you can say what you want about Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. 
And if you live in Egypt, I suppose you actually can't. But he definitely knows how to leverage the Egyptian soccer team's success for propaganda purposes. In other words, to sort of sport wash. So he's definitely trying to, Al-Sisi is trying to capitalize on Salah's fame. And, you know, it's tricky being Mohammed Salah. He was, the team was training in Grozny and in, in Chechnya and the Chechen, the sort of notorious Chechen leader, Ramzan Kadyrov, pulled him out of bed, it almost looked like from the photos and did this sort of photo op with him. And so Salah has to operate this really tricky political space where everybody's trying to use him for his political advantage. But, but the man is so popular that actually in that election I mentioned in Egypt, he got second place as a write-in candidate. He wasn't on the ballot, but he got wow. second place behind El Sisi. So, I mean, this is this is a guy who just is a, a tremendous figura, and it's hard not to cheer for him. So I'll be watching him moving forward. Right on. And Jules, something I ask uh, every guest on the show, but I want to ask you in particular because it's World Cup time. What music do you see yourself listening to as you enjoy this year's World Cup? Mm. Well, you know, I have been listening to a lot of Ulrich Schnauss, Sort of an electronica. The, the, the illustrious Ulrich Schnauss. Who isn't listening to Ulrich Schnauss these days? But uh, yeah, I've been swept into the Schnauss fever. And there's also a, a local a local Portland artist and songwriter who I really like called Haley Hendricks. She's pretty fantastic. So uh, I guess that's who I've been listening to this World Cup so far. Well, I got it. Who is Ulrich Schnauss? Uh, electronica musician, kind of relaxed. He's got this song called A Letter From Home. kind of moves you emotionally you can work to it you can write to it not a lot of words in there and uh, i just like it all right so we have we have a schnauss recommendation does it true they, they call their fans schnauzages that would be a great name <laughs> they should man they should they got a schnauzage <laughs> jules thank you so much for your time man really appreciate it this was illuminating on numerous levels anytime thanks for having me We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now... As promised, I've got some choice words about the NFL, the anthem, and the analysis that we're hearing right now. In 1969, NFL linebacker Dave Megacy, one of my heroes, walked away from the NFL in disgust over the way he believed football was acting as a reactionary social force in society, an impediment against meaningful social change. In his book, Out of Their League, he wrote, Politics and pro football are the most grotesque extremes of a dying empire. 
1975, sports writer Robert Lipsight, another one of my heroes, had a similar analysis of not just football, but sports as a whole. He wrote in his classic book, Sports World and American Dreamland, A great deal of the angry energy generated in America through the coming apart of the 1960s was absorbed by the sports world in its various roles as socializer, pacifier, safety valve, as a concentration camp for adolescents and an emotional Disneyland for their parents. Sports world is a buffer, a DMZ, that's demilitarized zone, between people and the economic and political systems that direct their lives. End quote. These quotes have been crawling under my scalp in the aftermath of the decision by the National Football League to fine teams if their players do not show quote-unquote proper respect during the national anthem. Much of the analysis of this by righteously rageful critics of ownership is that this decision was a capitulation to Donald Trump, that these billionaire masters of the universe fear Trump. They fear the hive mind control he has over his political base and its ability to collectively hurt ratings, attendance, and bottom line profits. NFL owners, this critique goes, want to get their league out of Donald Trump's mouth at all costs, so they meekly submitted to his wishes. Evidence of their weakness in the face of this bullying bombast was seen, as football scribe Melissa Jacobs pointed out, in the pathetic spectacle of Roger Goodell saying absolutely nothing when the Super Bowl champs, the politically active Philadelphia Eagles, were disinvited to the White House by Trump, even though not one Eagles player took a knee during the anthem last season in protest of racial inequity and police violence. It was, Jacobs correctly points out, an unabashed embarrassment that NBA Commissioner Adam Silver spoke out immediately in defense of socially engaged athletes while Goodell remained silent. Yet I disagree with the analysis that this new rancid policy of coercive patriotism was enacted because NFL owners are in full surrender to Donald Trump. Yes, they are afraid, very afraid. But it is not fear of the orange golem in the White House that has driven this new policy. It is fear of political athletes. It is fear of labor. It is fear not rooted in a loss of profits. I mean, the Carolina Panthers just sold for over $2 billion, for goodness sakes but in a loss of control. The NFL is supposed to be, as Lipsight wrote, a buffer and a concentration camp for adolescents and a Disneyland for adults. Instead, we're seeing football, of all things, as a center of rebellion against both our racist system of police violence and mass incarceration, as well as resistance to Donald Trump. By taking knees during the anthem, the kids in the concentration camps and the performers in the adult Disneyland are doing more than showcasing a political resistance. They are brashly and boldly displaying an independence from what they are supposed to be doing. They are refusing to be a buffer. They are rejecting the idea that they will be part of the theatrics of a dying empire. Instead, they are living by the credo set forth by Muhammad Ali, who said, I don't have to be what you want me to be. This is polarizing, enraging in some quarters, and political red meat for Trump's frothing base. But for NFL owners, the threat is far more daunting. To them, it's players refusing to be mere extensions of equipment on the field or robots advancing the ball. It's players noticing, as Michael Bennett of the Eagles has written, that the league is not in fact integrated. It's segregated, with mostly black bodies taking all the risk, pain, and traumatic brain injury, while an almost entirely white ownership class 
reaps the rewards. NFL owners are willing to look soft and foolish. They are willing to look like Trump lackeys. They are willing to be mocked if it accomplishes a broader objective, making sports be again a demilitarized zone between people and their lives. Their aims are nothing less than to stop, by any means necessary, the invasion of the real world, with all its racism, injustice, and creeping authoritarianism, into the sports world. If these owners have to be racist, unjust, and authoritarian to accomplish these aims, then so be it. Irony be damned. This is the code red. The players are tasting independence as well as a sense of their own power, and that cannot be tolerated, no matter who is in the White House. Hey everybody, this is Dave Zirin from the Edge of Sports Podcast. We are trying to add all kinds of bells and whistles to this pod. To do that, we need more folks who can sustain its existence. Go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. That is where you'll find us. If you become a patron, you'll see you get all kinds of little treats. But it's so important that people help us sustain and do the work. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. And you can give five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or if you're feeling mighty generous, a hell of a lot more than that. And all of that helps us do the kind of work that we're trying to do on the regular. Patreon.com slash Edge of Sports Pod. And now, back to the broadcast. Now it's time for the part of the show that we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down, where we give awards to people who are just standing up in the sports world and people who really just need to take all the seats. This week, the Just Stand Up Award comes from a listener, Marcus Tarjamo. He sent me a beautiful 2,000-word treatise on why it should go to Washington Capitals right winger and now Stanley Cup champion, Devontae Smith-Pelly. Uh, one of the few players of African descent in the National Hockey League. And I can't really read everything that Marcus Tarjamo wrote, but I want to read uh, some choice portions of it. You know, maybe we'll publish the entire statement on the website, patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod, because it really is beautifully written. But here's the essence of what Marcus Tarjamo wrote and why it should go to Devante smith Pelly. He wrote... While an ice hockey player, especially one who is not considered to be an impact player, may not seem like a traditional choice for the coveted Just Stand Up award, I think there's a case to be made for Mr. Smith-Pelly. The case lies in three things, what he represents as a black ice hockey player, his actions on the ice, and his actions off of it. Now I'm going to cut to the part where Marcus Tarjamo talks about these actions off of it, because they are important. Last week was a week where the president disinvited another team from having the quote-unquote privilege of meeting him at the White House. The Philadelphia Eagles, a team that unanimously expressed their disinterest, took a united stand against Trump's racism and his rhetoric by stating that they aren't down with going to the White House while Trump is still in office. Quietly, during that same week, Devante Smith-Pelly stood against Trump's behavior and his rhetoric and stated that he'd also avoid any potential team trip to the White House to meet Trump. Smith-Pelly stated in an interview with a Canadian newspaper, quote, The things that he spews are straight-up racist and sexist. Some of the things he said are pretty gross. I'm not too into politics, so I don't know all his other views, but his rhetoric I definitely don't agree with, end quote. While this statement at face value is rather unremarkable, and Smith-Pelly is not the first athlete to state his lack of desire to attend the White House, 
Smith Pelly does this in the context of being a black athlete in a majority white sports league, in a season where he was the target of racial taunts and jeers. He also does this alone, as his fellow teammates and coaching staff have expressed either excitement or casual indifference to the idea of attending the White House ceremony. Smith Pelly is also a free agent, and with the current situation where the NFL is colluding to prevent Colin Kaepernick from playing professional football, it's evident that sports leagues are not above collusion to prevent players from speaking on important issues. In a season where he faced racial animus from hockey fans, in a sport where a majority of the fans are white, on a team where most of his teammates could care less about U.S. politics, and in a year where he becomes a free agent and could be putting his career at risk, he stood up on principle to not attend the White House ceremony. Smith Pelly made a bold move. In summary, Smith Pelly, for the past several months and in the past week, has been an example of what you consider to be the edge of sports, where sports and politics come together. His representation of what it means to be a black person in North America and an ice hockey player and his willingness to stand up to Trump, though he risks losing something because of it, makes his, in my opinion, a strong candidate for the next Just Stand Up. Thank you, Dave Zirin, for taking the time to read my letter. As always, I'll be keeping up with your future podcasts. Have a wonderful day. Well, Marcus Tarjamo, you gave me a wonderful day with this beautiful breakdown of why it should be Devontae Smith-Pelly. And I will say, I agree. Devontae Smith-Pelly, you are the winner of the Just Stand Up Award. And we love getting nominees for these awards, so if anybody else has suggestions for the Just Stand Up or Just Sit Your Ass Down Awards, you can always email us at edgeofsports at gmail.com. Now, speaking of Just Sit Your Ass Down... Sit your ass down! Granted... I may be giving it to this person because I'm salty about the Cleveland Cavaliers for getting swept in the NBA Finals. Granted, I may be giving it to this person because I'm somewhat annoyed uh, by the Golden State Warriors these days. But to me, the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award goes to Draymond Green. The taunting by Draymond Green of the Cleveland Cavaliers, I just don't like it. The t-shirt he wore at the parade uh, in the Bay Area that was taunted LeBron James, I wasn't down with that. And then what he said to Tristan Thompson. Tristan Thompson, you know, they had a, a, a lot of battles throughout the series. There were threats of um, actual physical confrontations between the two. Tristan Thompson tried to give him a pound at the end, and Draymond Green just looked at him and said, hey, we're just not cut from the same cloth, meaning I'm a real badass and you're not. And I'm sorry, Draymond Green, you play with three future Hall of Famers, and I'm just tired of the example that you're setting by being like I am going to be the loudest most obnoxious person on the court and disrespect my opponents I'm not feeling it especially you talking like you're on the front lines of this team when one of the things that allows you to behave the way you do is because your team is stacked the way it is you were a 73 win team that added the second best player on earth and then won two titles Woohoo! Congratulations. Draymond Green, please sit your ass down.
Well, two points of note. Uh, we have no Kaepernick watch this week. We'll be sure to restore that segment in future podcasts. Just nothing for this week. And we're taking a week off from doing the podcast because of summer living, summer loving, summer lifing. And so so please wait a couple weeks and we'll be back in full effect. Let's keep getting the reviews for the podcast, everybody. We've been getting some more in, which really appreciated. Go to Apple, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. Leave a note about what you think about the show. Leave a rating. All that stuff makes a huge difference to us, sincerely. And it's literally the least you can do. To everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. Remember, you can always reach me, Dave Zirin, through my Twitter at Edge of Sports or at edgesports at gmail.com. We are out of here. Stay frosty, everybody. Peace. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.